Happy New Year. It's hard to believe 2020. Back in my youth, there was a group called The Birds. They had a song titled Turn, 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 based on the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a good song, and it really is true. Our lives pass very quickly. And I find it sobering to realize that I only have four sermons left as your pastor. That's sobering to me for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons has to do with the dilemma. What do I say? What do I preach? What should I preach? In my last four sermons, now let me qualify and try to explain what I mean. I trust it will be the will of God that I will preach to you again beyond the end of January, sometime. However, even if that proves to be the will of Christ, I will not be preaching as your pastor. There are prerogatives and responsibilities that belong to pastors when they preach to their congregations. Responsibilities and prerogatives that do not belong to non-pastors when they preach. And those prerogatives and responsibilities will no longer be mine. So what should I say to you? What would the head of the church want me to say to you in my last four pastoral sermons? Should I preach the doctrines that I think are most vital and important for you as a church? Or or should I try to expound prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled and things that you ought to be looking for and praying for? Or should I leave you with exhortations? The exhortations that I personally think are most crucial to you as individuals and to you as a church. What should I preach? Well, I've decided to preach the exhortations that I think are most crucial. Now, so that we're thinking about the same thing, what is an exhortation? Dictionary.com defines exhortation in this way, an utterance, discourse, or address conveying urgent advice or recommendation. An utterance, discourse, or address 
conveying urgent advice. So, if you would, think of these last four sermons, God willing, as urgent appeals to you to do things that at least I think are most imperative for your collective and individual well-being and progress in the faith. Well, where do I begin? I realize, fully realize, this could be the last sermon I'll ever preach. I don't know my time. You don't know your time. So what should I consider the most important exhortation? Well, in that regard, I I had no problem. It was immediately evident to me, to my mind, as to the most important exhortation that I could give you. And it's this. Keep increasing in the love of God and in the love of Jesus Christ in particular. Be at the work of increasing your love for God and particularly your love for Jesus Christ. Now, why am I singling Christ out? Of course, he is God. He's God the Son. He is a member, a co-equal member of the eternal Trinity. God exists as three eternal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, The one who became Jesus is a co-equal member with the Father and the Spirit. But there is, there is, there has come to be a difference. Jesus is the one member of the Godhead who actually saves us. Now the Father and the Holy Spirit are involved, of course, in the work of salvation. But it was God the Son who actually underwent the humiliation of becoming a human man. And it was the Son who, as man, underwent the greater humiliation and suffering of the wrath of God the Father in the place of sinners like us on the cross. It was Jesus the Son of God incarnate who was resurrected from the dead and taken back into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for us. God the Son, Jesus, is our substitute redeemer. He is our peace with God. He is our mediator. He is our coming king. He is our salvation. It's crucial that we grow in our love for the Father and the Holy Spirit, but it's particularly crucial that we be increasing in our love for Christ. And that's my first exhortation to you. And now I want to try to 
expound this exhortation under three headings, three one-word questions, okay? Three one-word questions. Why, what, and how? Why, what, and how? First of all, why? Why is increasing in love for God and for Jesus Christ in particular, why is that so important? Maybe that would not be the first exhortation that would come to your mind. Why do I think it is the most important challenge that I can leave with you? Well, I think it would be a sufficient answer to simply take you to a couple of texts. One would be Matthew 22, 36 through 38. A lawyer came to our Lord and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The other text would be Matthew ten thirty seven where Christ said, staggering words, these, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. These two texts teach us very clearly. Number one, that love for God is our highest moral duty. That's our chief moral duty, to love God with the totality of our being. And then we are taught that preeminent love to Christ, loving Christ supremely, is the chief evidence that we are united to him. If you don't love me more than anyone else in your life, you're not worthy of me, which is another way of saying you don't have me. We don't have a relationship unless you love me more than your parents, unless you love me more than your children, and certainly unless you love me more than you love your own life in this world. If you don't love me preeminently, you don't have me. The Apostle Paul underscored that at the end of his first epistle to the church at Corinth when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. If we're not loving Christ, we're not yet saved. 
Now, those considerations are enough to answer the question, why? Why do I think that the exhortation to be increasing in love for God and for Christ in particular is the most important exhortation that I could give you? Well, those texts explain why. But in an effort to give this exhortation greater sticking power in your consciences, I would like to suggest a fuller and more detailed answer to the question, why? Why? Beloved, you must be striving to love Christ more and more and more. Because your relationship with him and your relationship with God through him is simply the most vital, the most enduring, and the most satisfying relationship that you will ever have. Your relationship with Christ, your relationship with the God of the universe through Christ, is the most vital relationship, the most enduring relationship, and the most satisfying relationship that you can possibly have. First of all, your relationship with Christ is the most vital. It's the most indispensable relationship that you can possibly have. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, please. We, we've read this text in the recent past. It's a marvelous, marvelous text. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has begotten us to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, for you who are kept by the power of God, through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this salvation, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, in order that the genuineness of your faith, that you keep believing, you keep holding on to Jesus in and through your sufferings, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious or valuable than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, so that your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, 
yet believing. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is saying the greatest thing that God has given you is the gift of faith, whereby you are able to lay hold of Jesus Christ and you're brought into such a relationship with Christ that even though you can't see him with your eyes or touch him with your hands, you nonetheless love him and you experience inexpressible joy by believing on him. By grace through faith, God gives us Christ. He gives us Christ. Nothing could be better, more valuable, more satisfying than Christ. I want to ask you a question, not a tricky question. It's a thought-provoking question. What is it that actually saves you from your sin and from the wrath of God? Most of you would say that you are saved, right? What saves you? Is it the cross event that saves you? Jesus dying upon the cross, bearing the guilt of sinners like you and me, enduring the wrath of God due to that guilt, is that what saves you? Or is it the resurrection event that saves you? That Christ, having died, having given up his life as a sacrifice to propitiate the wrath of God, having died, is then risen, victorious, triumphant over death. Is that what saves you? Is it the resurrection event that saves you? Or is it your faith that saves you? Many preachers preach that Jesus has done everything for you he can do. Now it's up to you. The most essential ingredient in your salvation is not what Jesus did, it's what you do. You must believe. Your faith is the most essential. Well, which is it? What saves you? The cross event, the resurrection event, or the faith event? None of the three. It's Christ that saves you. It's Christ himself, the person of Jesus. He saves you. The one who died, the one who was buried, the one who was resurrected, taken into heaven, the object of your faith, Jesus. He's the one who saved you. Beloved, it was by the cross 
and by the resurrection that the Son of God became qualified to save you. He was not qualified simply because he was the Son of God. We had a problem with God. We had offended him. We had a debt that we owed to divine justice. We had a great enemy, death. In order for the Son of God to save us, he had to resolve all those problems for us. He had to take away our sin. He had to satisfy the offended justice of God. He had to conquer our greatest enemy, death. And having done all of that, he presents himself to us a qualified Savior. And he says, if you'll come to me, if you'll believe on me, I will save you. I'm the bread of life. Eat of me and you will live forever. Come to me. What saves us is Jesus. And our relationship to Jesus by faith. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? A personal relationship. Not the kind of relationship that you have with historical figures when you read their biography and you feel like you know them and you have a greater respect for them, beloved, you've got to have a different kind of relationship with Jesus. He's more than a figure in history who accomplished the greatest of all feats. He's alive. He's living. He's a real person. You've got to have a real relationship, an intimate, personal relationship with him. You've got to go to him. You've got to call on him. You have to take hold of him by faith and cling to him. You have to love him. You have to love him. If you don't have that kind of intimate, personal relationship with Christ, you don't have Christ. And you don't have salvation. One of my greatest fears over the decades is that there will be people under my ministry who come to believe the great facts about Jesus He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. He was resurrected and transformed. He is glorified in heaven. He's coming again. That they will believe that. That you will believe that and yet never know him. Never have dealings with him. Never confess your need of him. Never call on him. Never throw yourself upon him. And to know and believe the facts and not have him is to perish. And to hear him say in the last day, I never knew you. You never had a relationship with me. 
But if you do have a personal, intimate, believing, loving relationship with Jesus, would you say that you love him as much as you should? Would you say you love him as much as you should? Would you say that your love for him is steadfast, doesn't waver, it's always increasing, never declining? I can't imagine saying that myself. I wish I could say that. I think I can identify with Christ speaking to the Ephesians. I can identify with the Ephesians, hearing Christ say, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Jesus is our salvation. Therefore, nothing is more important for us than to be increasing in our love for him. But your relationship with Christ is not only the most vital relationship you have, it is the most enduring. It's the most enduring relationship that you have. I wasn't able to attend Billy Shepard's memorial service yesterday, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if this text was read. We seem to read it at every occasion of the dying of a saint, and well, we should. We just ought to read it at other times, too. 1 Thessalonians four, sixteen and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now listen to these last words. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. We've never been with him like that. To behold his glory. To be able to touch him. Look upon him. See the brightness of his majesty. But we're going to. And once we are in his presence like that, we will never be out of his presence. We will be with him forever. Turn, please, to Revelation 21.
Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. John testifies, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Now think about that. It doesn't say the tabernacle of men is with God. It says the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Are you a Jesus lover? That's your destiny. That's your destiny. God purposes to be with you forevermore. He's going to come to us. <laughs> We're going to go to him, and then he's going to bring us back into our dwelling place. He's going to make, remake the created universe. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This is our habitation. He's going to make it perfect. And then he's going to dwell with us in our world. That's our destiny. I believe, I believe in eternity future that we will spend our days working. You say, oh, that's not good news. Well, it's not going to be toilsome work. There'll be no thorns. It will be easy work, glorious work. Discovering new things, wonderful things about God and what he has made. But in our work, if I'm right, we will ever be aware of the brightness of God's glory. His glory will be staggering, and it will be everywhere. It will envelop us. There will be a real sense of the presence of God. And we will be able to go to the place where Jesus is in his humanity, localized and manifested, and we'll be able to go to him and feast with him And enjoy him. And we will spend eternity laboring joyfully to the glory of God and enjoying God. And the thing that's most distinguishing about heaven is that God is there in all his glory. We'll feel, we'll see, we will know, we will partake of his glory. And we will live in his culture, not in ours. Our culture is one of death and sorrow and temptation and shame and separation. His culture 
is one of everlasting holiness and purity and life. And he's going to bring our culture, his culture, to us. He's going to wipe away all our tears. And there's not going to be any more death. There's not going to be any more sorrow. No more suffering. No more separation. No more end to good things. The good things last forever. Boy, don't you look forward to that. Now we look forward to seeing other people. We have loved ones who've already gone. And then we'll go and we'll leave other loved ones behind. And one day, every loved one you have who loves Jesus with you will be gathered unto you and you'll never again be separated. But our relationship with spouses and children, parents, siblings, friends, our relationship will be different. Not different, worse, different, better, but different. But our relationship with Jesus, it'll be the same, only more intense. He'll be our Lord. He'll be our Savior. He'll be our life. He'll be our joy. And that will increase and increase. And I believe there is increase in heaven. And our enjoyment of Christ will increase. Beloved, listen, the best way to prepare for heaven is to get closer and closer to Jesus. Do you ever look forward to having some days in which you can shut yourself off from everything And just concentrate on Christ. Just talking to him. Casting cares on him. Confessing sin to him. Hearing through his word what he has to say to you. That's going to be your eternity. If you know him. Why should we be striving to increase our love for Jesus. Well, first, because it's the most vital relationship we have. Secondly, it's the most enduring relationship we have. And finally, it's the most satisfying. It's the most satisfying relationship that we have. If you've been a Christian for very long, I... I suspect that you know Psalm 37, 3 through 5, which reads, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Feed on his faithfulness. Delight, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will satisfy you. If the Lord is your delight, he will be glad to satisfy 
the longings of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Turn to Psalm 107. This will probably be the last text I'll ask you to turn to. Psalm 107, verse 8. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God, despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, there was none to help. But then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them. Out of their distresses, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. He broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. That describes your experience if you're a Christian. Your sin, your rejection of God and his law brought you into desolation and all kinds of trouble. And there was no one who could help you. But finally, by his grace, you cried out to him. And he came and he delivered you and he broke your chains asunder. And he's filled your life with good things. Supremely himself. And he satisfies your heart. Unfairly. Unfairly. We often. Expect other relationships. To satisfy us. Satisfy our restlessness. And fill up our emptiness. We expect marriage to do it. When marriage doesn't do it, we expect parenthood to do it. We have children because we want satisfaction. And we think having children will do it. We build friendships, relationships, even with God's people. And we expect that those relationships will fill the void. That's not fair. We tend to make idols out of our relationships and then we become bitter and disillusioned because they don't satisfy us. They can't satisfy us. People end their marriages and look for new ones. They cast off old friends and make new friends. Because the old marriage and the old friends didn't fill the void. 
They're looking for relationships that will satisfy the ache of their souls. And they will never find them. You know why? You know why your marriage will never meet your deepest need? Why your kids will never meet your... You know why? You were created for God. God made you for Himself. The reason you exist is to glorify God and what? Enjoy Him forever. When God by His grace draws us to Jesus, you know how He gives Christ to us He gives himself. The whole Godhead makes home with us. And that's when we began to experience satisfaction. God satisfies. Do you know know how he does it? He does it in a way that we would never expect. He satisfies us by refusing to become fixated upon us. Instead, he enables us to become fixated upon him. Beloved, have you realized that what you want out of your marriage, what you want out of your children, what you want out of your friends, you want them to become fixated on you. You want them to love you more than anything. But they won't love you more than anything. (laughs) They'll love themselves more than they love you. And they won't dote over you and make over you the way you want them to. And that's why your relationships fail. People won't dote on you. How did Satan bring our first parents to disobey God? By promising that they would be like God. Right? Well, why in the world would you want to be like God? Have the weight of history on your shoulders. Have to maintain the order of the universe and hold every rational being accountable for their act. Is that sound like fun to you? No, that's not what they wanted. They wanted to be like God for one reason. God is worshipped. God is worshipped. That's why Satan rebelled. He wanted to be adored and worshipped like God. And beloved, that's what we are looking for by nature. We're looking for people who will adore us and worship us and dote on us. And you know what? Even if we could find some people to do that, it wouldn't satisfy us. Because that's not why we were created. We were created to dote on another, on God. 
And God satisfies us by turning our hearts away from ourselves and away from the expectations that other will, others will worship us and make over us. God turns us to worship and adore and praise himself. And that is satisfying. God is satisfying. Worship toward God is satisfying. Probably not many of us were able to rejoice in the recent bowl season for non-sports people this time of the year. There are things called bowl games. Football teams play each other. Supposedly a reward for having a good season. And if you're a football fan like I am, it's, it's harvest time. You get to watch all kinds of football games. And as I thought about it, except for people like Jonathan and Carolina fans here, most of us were disappointed in the bowl season. But some of you were happy. And maybe the best is still ahead. What gives us so much joy when our teams win? Well, we're identified with them. And if we're real fans, we become acquainted with them and with the players, with the coaches. We almost feel like we're part of the team. And when they win, we enter vicariously into their victory and celebration. But maybe the best part is that we can boast a little bit. (laughs) Have to be careful who we boast to, but we can boast about our team, our quarterback, our coach. Beloved, take that joy of victory and boasting, multiply it a million times. And think of the victories of your Lord. Think of who he is. The Lord of all lords, the king of all kings. The one who has conquered every enemy. The one who has triumphed over death. He has won. And take that level of energy that you invest in boasting about your team. Now you can still do that, of course, but... Take the greater part of that energy and boast about Jesus. I think we we need to change our definition of evangelism. For many of us, evangelism means that we extract a decision out of people, that they will commit to Jesus. Redefined evangelism in this way. It's boasting about all that Jesus is and all that he has done. Talking about Jesus. Bragging about Jesus. That's joy. That's satisfying. Because we were made for that. God created us for that. Well... I hope 
these comments give you some appreciation as to why I exhort you to be ever increasing in the love of God and in the love of Christ in particular. Our relationship with him is the most vital, the most enduring, and the most satisfying relationship we can have. I close with a personal question. How much effort do you regularly put forth to love Jesus more? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about how much you love him? Are you ever embarrassed because your love is weak? Do you ever go to him and say, Lord Jesus, you see my heart? You know my thoughts. And I do appreciate what you did for me in the cross. And I am glad for the promises of the gospel. But I'm embarrassed because I don't get excited about you as I once did. I don't talk about you and brag about you I don't enjoy you. I'm not close to you the way I once was. Oh, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. Please, please draw me nearer to you. I can't imagine urging you toward anything more important than that. Now, there are other things that I want to say about this. What is love for Christ? How do you love him more? Now, I've got a decision to make. Do I come back next week and talk about that or just leave it here? Well, whatever. For now, I hope you have a larger awareness of your need to love Jesus more than you do. Let's pray. My dear Father, I realize I'm naked and open before you. As I have preached these words to your people, You are aware of the weakness of my own love. I wouldn't try to hide that. It would be a foolish thing to do. I need to love Jesus more. I need to be more fixated on him and not upon his gifts or upon myself or on what people can do for me. I've been redeemed at a great price. And my fixation needs to be on the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I need to be loving him and worshiping him, seeking to honor him in everything I do. 
And that's true of every believer in this room. May 2020, whatever else it holds for us, may it be a year in which we grow in our love and appreciation and worship toward Christ. And for those who are strangers to everything I've said because they have never permitted themselves to feel their need of him and they've never gone to him, believed on him, thrown themselves upon him, confessed their sin. Oh, Father, come to those people today and cause them to realize how hopeless their condition without Christ. Now dismiss us with a large sense of the beauty and worthiness of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.